You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Alexander Ritzman, a senior advisor with CEP. Alexander is an expert in the field of terrorism, radicalization and extremism, and he has been working on these topics for over 20 years now. Alexander is an associate fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations, where he co-develops and facilitates the International Forum for Expert Exchange on Countering Islamist Extremism. Alexander is also advising the European Commission's Radicalization Awareness Network, otherwise known as RAN, particularly focusing on extremist ideologies, narratives and strategic communications. In addition to that, he advises the Counter-Extremism Project in Berlin on internet regulation, including the NETSDG, AI transparency and the EU Digital Services Act as well as on the effective countering of extremist and terrorist actors and content online. So in this context, he has co-authored several policy papers on uh, the various regulations in this area, most recently, of course, the Digital Services Act. In today's podcast with Alexander, I hope to discuss these topics and more particularly to take a closer look at the Digital Services Act, the legislation which has been proposed by the EU to regulate big tech. Alexander, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Alexander, you, we in CEP have been working and analysing the initial proposals from the European Commission from December 2020 relating to the Digital Services Act. It's a, a big and ambitious piece of legislation. But I think it would be really interesting to start with sort of, I suppose, taking a look at the context and, you know, helping our listeners to understand the phenomenon that has led to these legislative proposals, you know, illegal content online, and I suppose the role that big tech has played in the spread of harmful and extremist content online. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's really great that you highlight this. The context, I guess, is essential to assess the different proposals from Commission and now also from the European Parliament and how to make so-called social media and video platforms safer for users. And of course, there are other objectives, but this is our focus here at CEP. And obvious, there are benefits of social media and video sharing platforms, right? We all enjoy them. We use them. And the people I know there are smart and decent people. So I've worked with Facebook and Google, YouTube and others in different contexts. But what we should talk about today is that despite that, there are many toxic effects for individuals and societies that occur from those platforms. Extremism and hate are human condition that can be fostered or mitigated. And I'm a student of history. I'm inspired by political thinkers and philosophers like Karl Popper and Hannah Arendt. So I'm well aware that Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, or Saddam Hussein, other murdering dictators did not need the internet to do what they did, right? So this is really about what is the role of these so-called social media in this process of threatening 
the political discourse or the harm or the, the well-being of uh, individual users. Back in the 90s, when there already was an internet, mostly consisting of emails and message boards, groups like Al-Qaeda, for example, would travel through the world with video cassettes, and they would go to different groups, associations, sometimes mosques, and they would show their propaganda, their hands-on physically sitting with people. And of course, also in the 90s, there was neo-Nazi music festivals and other gatherings. The key difference, I think, so answering the question, what is new here, is that back in the day, you would have to have some connection to someone who is already involved with extremism, some sort of proximity. But today, social media allow bad actors to be present in your living room, in your interactions with friends and family. Social media until today do still recommend illegal and harmful content and there are dozens of independent research studies making that case. And social media allow extremists to follow people around in some cases, they even recommend extremist, illegal, harmful content to users who look for something else. Because this content is often emotional, exciting, it triggers our brain into wanting to stay on the platform. Mm -hmm. And that is, it's, it's important to realize that social media are not just built by engineers, but by psychologists, neuroscientists, and anthropologists that are exploring and exploiting human nature and human needs for their business purposes. The algorithms are designed to feed some of our most basic needs. So for example, we humans have a need for belonging, for safety, for purpose, and belonging to a group by having a group identity helps us fulfill those needs. Pushing group identities against one another, promoting superiority, downgrading others then can lead to polarization and conflict. And social media are manipulative enterprises. They are built to keep us hooked online because only then the company makes money. So the business model of social media is to extract and monetize as much data as possible from their users by manipulating them to spend as much time as possible on the platform. And there are, there are former um, employees of these companies like Tristan Harris, former Google employee, co-creator of the documentary, The Social Dilemma, who says that social media are creating a society that is addicted, outraged, polarized, performative, and misinformed. And there's a Harvard professor, Joan Donovan, who recently said at the US Senate hearing that misinformation at scale is a feature of social media, not a bug. And also in the EU, Margarete Vestager, our vice president of the European Commission for Digital Age, has called very large tech companies threats to democracy and anti-competitive. So this is trying to frame what I'm trying to talk about. And now back to the work of CEP. The problems I'm trying to fix, I have three priorities. Priority one is, I don't want my nieces and nephews or anyone else of being nudged into harmful illegal content, right? The amplification algorithmically of addictive, arousing, harmful content by companies is one of the key challenges. Priority two is that my nieces and nephews and anybody else who would like to get informed about, let's say, Islam or the refugee crisis 
are not supposed to be directed to the most extreme positions out there, often put forward by extremist groups, which is what has happened over the last years and to a degree is still the case. And priority three is to make the life of extremists, those who want to overthrow our liberal democracies, as hard as possible within a rule of law framework by limiting the space of operation. And to end this, you might ask which groups are using this. And I think it depends on how well they understand the functionality of the platforms and how well they understand human needs because the social media allow users to signal their tribe 24 seven, their group, what they feel, their fears, their anger, their hate. And depending on the group, depending on what this group rewards, they will be rewarded with likes, shares, and status upgrades. And this leads to biochemical reactions in our brain, hormones, neurotransmitters like oxytocin, dopamine, endorphin. This is all well-researched. We have a very old brain and we're not used to being scared or outraged 24-7. Now, does this all lead automatically to people becoming extremists? No. Obviously not. We would have other numbers in terms of extremism. But being exposed to extremist and terrorist content increases the risk of radicalization. And of course, hosting and promoting illegal content is illegal. Thanks. I think that's a that's a, a great introduction and gives a really neat overview of the challenges, risks and the, the context of moves at European level and, and indeed elsewhere to try to rein in and regulate the big tech companies in particular. So I suppose if you're looking at the environment in which these companies operate, if you look at the European framework to begin with, where do you see the gaps or, you know, are they so great that we're really starting almost with a blank page? How do policymakers need to approach this? That's a great question because it's on one hand about gaps and on the other hand about systemic problems. Back to my background, for six years now, I've been working with, on, and for big tech, like in the context of the EU Internet Forum, the NetsDG, the German Network Enforcement Law, Terrorist Content Online Directive, Digital Services Act, and on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act in the United States. That is the mother code of the regulation, also in the EU. It's important for me, at least it was, to understand that social media and big tech are a U.S. industry born in a United States legal framework and culture. And generally, of course, it's great that our European Commission has put forward this draft Digital Services Act, and it's welcomed as an ambitious piece of legislation because it aims to create a safer space for all users in the EU. And that is, of course, what we are all interested in. But what we also should talk about is before we talk about that regulation is how we ended up where we are right now. So what I did at the beginning was more like a talk of human nature and the functionality of social media. And I think it's important to understand why they do what they do. Why do social media operate the way that they do? Why are they so negligent in protecting their users from harm? And the simple answer is because they can or put differently, because we let them. So again, the business model, it's very important to understand the business model. The business model is not free speech. The business model is of most very large social media platforms, the so-called gatekeepers, 
is based on extracting and monetizing as much data as possible from their users by manipulating them to spend as much time as possible on their platforms. They were not designed to be public spaces for free exchange of opinion. They are for-profit companies who also don't have a public mandate to protect free speech. And the right of freedom of expression protects against government censorship, not against private companies. They're much closer to, I would say, a shopping mall with a speaker's corners where the owners decide who can speak and about what than they are to a town hall or a physical public space. But many of us, of course, project our desire for freedom of speech in the EU on market dominating for-profit companies from the US. So how did we get here? And the, the key point, there's, there's lots to talk about, of course, but the key point I need to focus on, the systemic flaw in all of this, in my understanding, is the limited liability. The limited liability, which remains in the Digital Services Act until today is the foundation of the current dominance of the gatekeepers and of the toxic effects of the gatekeepers. That limited liability privilege is based on a 62-year-old US court decision in the United States where uh, a newsstand owner, uh, Eliza Smith, was uh, in 1956 arrested by a Los Angeles Police Department vice cop because one of the books that he was selling had explicit and at the time illegal content. So Eliza Smith was arrested for selling a book. Um, he was put into jail for a week and uh, he would have had to pay a large fine. So he went to the US Supreme Court and the US Supreme Court, and this is essential, I think in understanding what we're talking about said that a bookseller cannot be held liable for the book, books he or she is selling unless they knew that it was illegal or should have known. So can we expect a bookseller to read all the books and make sure they're all legal? And the Supreme Court says, no, we can't. And this privilege from the 1950s until today is the special privilege that serves multi-billion dollar big tech companies. And that is interestingly currently challenged in the United States, but not in the European Union. And this is relevant because the policy advisors from the European Union that went to the United States in the late 1990s to learn about that internet thing that at the time was mostly emails and message boards, um, the US policy advisors that talk about what happened at the time said, the Europeans were very skeptical about this uh, limited liability. Why should there be an industry that is not responsible for the harm that it does? And the convincing argument of the Americans was, well, it's just the internet. At the time, it was totally a small thing that almost nobody understood. Um, supposedly only two US senators had internet access at the time. So we need to understand this thing that makes this industry what it is today comes from a different time. And this is the core of the problem and the limited liability privilege, which I, to my understanding, no other industry has, allows the companies to not be held responsible for the harm they're doing with that limitation of saying, unless they're new or they should have known that harm will come out of what they're doing.
So this is not about good or bad intentions, like big oil or big tobacco managers. They don't get up in the morning and say how to destroy people's lives. They get up in the morning and say, let's make as much money as possible. And big tech is the same. They are for-profit companies who do what they are allowed to do. Now, the e-commerce directive that until today is still operational, the legal framework for those companies in the EU includes a copy of that Section 230 that limited liability from the time when there were small startups that were supposed to grow and we didn't want to overburden them with content moderation. But there is... From the very beginning, companies were allowed, of course, to moderate content. And they also, if they did so, they were not held liable for the content they did not moderate. This is called the Good Samaritan Clause. I think it's a funny picture. Uh, The Good Samaritan, right, was a traveler who passed by someone who was in trouble and helped him. Here, we use this picture to explain that multi-billion dollar companies who built the framework for the harm, if they help, they're not liable for the things they don't help with. The issue is, and this is, I guess, one of the key points that need to be explained here, is that so the companies are allowed to moderate, but there are no incentives for them to do it. So this is why the content moderation, the protection of users is so bad. It is from a business perspective, simply smart to allocate your best engineers into growing your business. Yeah, since bad content moderation has no significant consequence. So seriously, why would you put your best people on fixing content moderation if they could make money on the other hand? It is in the framework of for-profit companies in the capitalist societies that we have, the regular thing to do. Now, at the time in the 1990s, the legislators thought, well, if companies don't moderate their content, protect their users not properly, the users will simply move to another platform, right? They thought that competition would take care of bad content moderation. But as we know, there is no competition. Who is the competition to Facebook or to YouTube? A significant competition. So this is why it is business-wise we, I think um, this is what I, uh, this is my kind of analysis here is that it's in the interest of the companies to put their best people on growing the business. It's also in the interest of the companies to hire more public policy managers. They are much less expensive than top engineers. Those public policy managers sit down with civil society and develop small projects and counter speech and prevention work. Those public policy managers build high-level policy initiatives with policymakers with no significant consequence for the big companies. Alexander, just a a question. I mean, in terms of what what has happened in, in a voluntary way from global initiatives, European initiatives to try to counter online extremism, online terrorism, social media companies, and you're touching on it now, have obviously uh, convinced policymakers to a large extent or at least some policymakers, that they are responding, that they're participating in these various forums, and that they're taking this issue very seriously. They're allocating resources, financial, uh, human resources, et cetera, to tackling the problem. But from what you're saying, not only is it not effective, but it's perhaps a little bit disingenuous. 
Well, I think it is part of regular business strategy, right? So when there's trouble from policymakers for whatever business you're doing, but you're convinced that you're doing what you're doing for the right reasons, you hire consultants or you hire public policy managers who deal with those who have issues with what you're doing. So again, this is, from my perspective, not about good or bad intentions, it's the framework. And what most industries, though, have to do is think about liability. So if a company sells products that are toxic, they will be held liable. And if they say, we didn't know what's in the product, despite the fact that they promote the product, they highlight the benefits of the product, they buy the product, they sell the product, then at some point, this company will run into deep trouble. But this is not the case here. There are very few court cases in general against big tech, and most have been not successful so far or are still in, in the process. And I'm not sure if this is a scheme by big tech or if this is just based on the bad legislation that we have. And I'm tending towards that it, this is a sign of a policy failure, that the legislation that is currently active was designed to help small startups grow in the 1990s and beyond. And it is now applied on the most wealthy companies on the planet. And that that might cause problems is clear. And sitting down policymakers, civil society, and to companies, I've been doing this for years now, and this is great, but it does not lead to a change in behavior on the company side because they don't have to. So I think you've given a, a really good explanation of limited liability. And obviously that touches on how the e-commerce directive operates currently in Europe. And that is the kind of main framework for regulating these companies. So the Digital Services Act is intended to overhaul the e-commerce directive and to put in place a much more comprehensive regulatory regime. I mean, the, the self-stated objective is to introduce much greater transparency and accountability for tech companies in Europe. So when you look at the, the DSA proposal from the European Commission, obviously it has to go through a very lengthy process of decision-making and amending and so on over the coming year or so. But I mean, do you think that there are elements of it that achieve or potentially will achieve that aim? Or are you essentially disappointed from the get-go? Well, at the moment, the draft put forward by the European Commission leaves the business model and the limited liability intact. So what it will do, especially for the gatekeepers, the big companies, is it will increase the costs of doing business, but they can continue doing business as usual. I don't see any connection between transparency and audits and a significant improvement of the situation that I was trying to highlight at the beginning, right? So transparency is essential, and this is something to be welcomed. And also the idea on how to achieve transparency is positive. There is a mandatory risk assessment uh, planned for the big companies, which interestingly, they are supposed to do themselves, right? So I just imagine a company in the chemical industry to be asked to self-assess how dangerous their products are and then put out a report. And uh, I'm not sure if we, we operate uh, that this way with other companies that have good and bad consequences or products or services. But the issue is the audits as well. So the DSA pushed forward 
mandatory audits, external audits, which is a great idea. But unfortunately, the lessons learned from, for example, auditing the financial industry in the context of the financial crisis, for example, are not implemented. There are some great lessons to be learned. And uh, my colleague Hans-Jakob Schindler just has put out a paper on the lessons learned from the financial industry not to make the same mistakes again, which almost killed the world economy. So uh, there are some key points that should be considered. There are some great ideas. There are great intentions. But I also have to say that what I've heard from commission is that they are obliged to put out a proposal that is acceptable to all the other partners in the legislative process, which will be EU Council, of course, and the Parliament. And it seems that the Parliament, this is what I've heard, is in opposition to changing the limited liability and the business model due to concerns of privacy, freedom of expression, and human rights. Yeah, I think that's quite apparent. I mean, we certainly would have had quite a lot of engagement with the European Parliament uh, during the formulation of the terrorist content online regulation. And there is a reluctance in the Parliament to intervene too robustly with these companies. And the primary reason that is given is freedom of speech, freedom of expression. So I don't know, I mean, from your perspective, does that mean that the companies have been exceptionally successful in lobbying directly? Does it mean that uh, civil society organizations have been particularly effective in their engagement with the parliament? Is it a misunderstanding of the entire sort of context to how these companies operate as you've outlined already? What's your take on that? That's a great question. I think it's a mix of different things. So I think generally there's not enough awareness of the concept of limited liability, where it comes from, what the context was at the time and what it's doing right now. This only industry, the only industry that can usually not be held responsible for the harm they're causing. The other is the, the urge and need to have a public space for freedom of expression, but there is no alternative, right? So uh, Europe missed out on building alternative platforms. So we're stuck with these US American for-profit companies that have hired the best engineers and the best other scientists to keep us all engaged as possible to make as much money as possible. And the recommendations from Parliament, from the Liebe Committee, from the IMCO Committee that I haven't really read yet because it just came out a few days ago. And one is 1,334 pages long, so I'm stuck in the middle. But their point, it seems, is to work on that model and try to adjust it to the needs of the European citizens and users without challenging the basic functionality and the limited liability. And I don't know how this is supposed to work. And maybe as a picture, sometimes analogies are helpful. They're always wrong, but sometimes they're helpful. So if we imagine a car, a car has great benefits in terms of mobility and transportation, but it also produces toxic gas that kills the environment and humans. So how do you approach that toxicity? And the EU approach is to work on the exhaustion pipe, to work on the converter, to try to work that less toxic gas is coming out of this social media platform world 
while the Americans, interestingly, work on the engine and on the fossil fuel. They have understood that you can only change the core nature of the problem by addressing the fossil fuel, which could be the limited liability, and the engine, which could be the business model. And as we've seen with the car industry, it took 50 years or so for regulators to realize that it's not effective to work on the exhaustion pipe. You need to give incentives and legislation for either getting rid of fossil fuel and uh, exchanging it with synthetic fuel or another sort of engine. And I think this is somewhat helpful of understanding where we are in this process of regulation. We are still focusing on the wrong part of the problem in the EU. And interestingly, the US is now focusing on the, I think, core part of it, but also they built it, they own it, they broke it, and now they probably have to fix it. And maybe the Europeans are not as great as they think with regulating the industry. The GDPR was a great success to a degree. The actual implementation of the GDPR is another topic, but we might have been carried away by proposing great legislation without actually working on the core issue here. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, you know, I think the perception always in Europe is that the constitutional protections of freedom of expression in the US meant that Europe would move more quickly to, to deal with regulating big tech. So it would certainly be ironic if it ultimately turns out that the US legislature addresses this in a more meaningful way more quickly than the EU. It certainly would turn on its head the idea that that we in Europe are sort of ahead of the curve in regulating, as we like to think we are, certainly when it comes to GDPR. So that's an interesting perspective, which you've just outlined. Just a question on, well, two things, actually, which we have focused on a lot in CEP, particularly with our colleague, Professor Hani Farid. One around algorithmic amplification, which you've touched on, but I think um, perhaps uh, helping our listeners to understand a little bit about how that works and how it fits into the business model. And then the other interesting angle, which is certainly being resisted very much by, and has been by the European Parliament, is the role of proactive measures, upload filters, re-upload filters, and the potential for their deployment to really tackle the removal of extremist content. Yeah, very important point. So the amplification issue, which includes uh, the recommendation algorithms, is based on the fact that we don't see social media, what is going on. We see a virtual reality created for us where the company decides what we think is best for us to see. Right, So there's no chronological timeline usually, but it's all pre-selected, it's all filtered, it's all manipulated to serve users in a good way, right, to inform them about things they might be most interested in. But also, as I mentioned, it is playing with the human brain that has a tendency to focus on negative information, on fearful information, on hate, on extremism. So this is, I think, the key point that the companies are not showing us what's going on online or what are other people doing. They are pre-selecting what they think keeps us engaged 
for the longest time so we share as much data as possible with them, which they can then sell the access to, to their advertisement partners or customers, which has made them the most wealthy companies in the world. So this is part of the situation. And whenever there's a big scandal, let's say there's a study that comes up and says, like Hani Farid, our colleague has done, showing that the amplification of conspiracy myth or hate speech is significant and leads to more engagement and to more conspiracy myth sharing. The companies then focus on this when the pressure is high and the, the fire is big enough made by civil society, researchers, some policymakers, and they say, oh, we understood. Now we have to fix this. So they then, when the pressure is big enough, there is a ad hoc approach of putting out that specific fire while the rest of the companies moving on, doing what they always do, and in the context, making more fires. So we have not had any significant change that challenged, because this would have to change the limited liability, because if the companies would be liable for pushing people towards extremism, hate, disinformation, there would be court cases, there would be huge sums for the companies to pay, and then they would put their best engineers on fixing that, because they can. The whole business is based on understanding users for advertisement purposes. The whole business is based on understanding context and what will lead to what understanding decision making. This is what they're selling. But in the context of illegal content and harmful and extremist content, they say, ah, this is also complicated. And it is complicated, but it's also complicated because your best people are making money while you hire policy managers to deal with us, uh, to do nice workshops and projects and pat us on the head and say, yes, we hear you. And this is really terrible what is going on. Let's try to do a project. And I'm not sure for how long this approach will continue. So the amplification is a part of the system. It is not just a smaller problem. And the second question was? It's a connected point, I suppose, around the potential use of proactive measures. Yeah. So all big platforms use proactive measures. They use upload filters and re-upload filters. They use content recognition systems because they have to. There are hundreds of millions of uploads every day on these platforms. There's not even a theoretical possibility for humans to steer this. So everything is in its core pre-automated based on business decisions of the platforms. So here, saying that proactive measures are complicated to implement, some companies have said that in the past, is obviously not correct because they'd use those same proactive measures like filters and upload filters and content recognition systems to get rid of legal but unwanted content. And this could be, for example, nudity, legal nudity. You won't see nudity on those platforms. They simply don't want to have it there, despite the fact that it is legal. And of course, it is uh, copyright violations related. So the companies can do that. And for some reason, a narrative came up that not having proactive measures regarding illegal content and harmful content is better for civil liberties than having them. And I really don't understand that because right now the users 
of the platforms are left to notice an action, meaning I see something terrible and I report it and I might get traumatized in the process and frustrated because the company most likely will not take it down. And on the other hand, the clandestine operations, the voluntary content moderation of the companies that we don't know enough about, and they are not obliged to share the details about so far. This is something that the DSA is trying to fix the transparency, but the DSA still insists that we should not mandate proactive measures regarding illegal content. And I don't understand how this is supposed to work. How many hundreds of thousands of content moderators, humans like you and I, are supposed to see the most terrible content in person and then mark it as this is illegal or this is against our terms of service. This is in a way a romantic discussion about something that should be a lofty idea, but to put it differently, the protection of civil liberties of the users in the EU is done better if there are proactive measures, if they are transparent, if they are audited and people know what's going on compared to right now where the companies do what they want and the users are left to themselves. Yeah, I think to me, I mean, I'm 100% in agreement with you, unsurprisingly. I mean, I think we have seen buzzwords almost overtake sort of rational, logical thinking when it comes to upload filters. I mean, you know, I've had lengthy discussions with MEPs who will tell me that it is a violation of civil liberties, freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera, for companies to be mandated to use upload filters. And then you say to them, but obviously, you know, these companies use upload filters every second of every hour of every day of every week. Yeah. But the companies determine what upload filters and there is zero transparency for regulators or for citizens to understand how or why or when they're being applied. It really is extraordinary. So it is, um, it is. And I have the same experience, actually. And I came to the conclusion with after dozens of conversations with policymakers and their staffers that there's some sort of a trauma as a result of the copyright directive in the EU, where people were yeah. demonstrating, where policymakers were put under pressure by civil society and activists. And they tell me that they're not gonna go there again, that F word, the filter word, mm -hmm. shall not be touched. Um, they will not touch it and they will look for other things because they feel that if they touch that again, all hell will break loose. And that is so interesting that we, trust the security of our European citizens to American for-profit companies who have a business model that produces good and bad. But now we also think that they are capable and interested in protecting free speech in the EU. And to me, this is really outrageous. It's like asking McDonald's and Burger King to take over all school canteens in the EU to feed our children. Who would suggest that? Who would suggest that? Why not? Because they have a business model that is not focused on the health of their customers. Mm -hmm. And neither are the business models of big tech. They are also not focused on the health of their customers. And as long as that remains unchanged, all the audits and all the transparency and all the this and that will not build the internet, the social media that we actually need and also deserve. So we have to really change course here. But I'm afraid that like with the regulation of the automobile industry, of the toxic gas outputs of combustion engines and all, it will take 
time to get there. And just maybe as a, as a related point, without effective content moderation, meaning without, again, liability for ineffective content moderation, the free speech we all want will be limited to free speech for bullies, haters, and extremists. There's this thing called chilling effect. And you will not share your thoughts openly online if you will be harassed and threatened afterwards without consequence for the people who harass and threaten you. And there's a, an NGO, a German NGO called Hate Aid. They support victims of online hate. And anyone who is not clear of what we're talking about here, please reach out to them and please tell them what people are suffering and also how the companies react to the attempts of going after those who bully and uh, threaten regular people online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think we've certainly had a very positive experience engaging and collaborating with HateAge. They're doing some really excellent work in this space, both in Germany and uh, in Brussels also. Maybe to, to sort of draw to a conclusion, Alexander, I mean, your critique of the approach, the overall approach, it's kind of hard to get beyond it in a sense because the attitude to regulating big tech is fundamentally flawed. And until we address the liability issue, it's difficult really to, to get into the weeds of sort of individual amendments and, and proposals to improve the regulation, which, which is frustrating, but I guess we continue to work on it. A connected question, though, is, you know, we're, we've been focusing on the sort of overarching EU approach through the European Commission, but of course, member states individually are uh, moving ahead with their own measures and probably the the first and most ambitious was Germany with the next DG regulation, which has now been in place for a few years. Are there lessons that can be learned from that? And obviously there are other member states now moving ahead as well with their own legislation in this field. Absolutely. And one of the lessons learned is what I've tried to share earlier, that we have tried this attempt for going after transparency and some sort of responsibility without touching the core parts of what generates the problem in Germany from 2017 on. But I also wanted to say that I'm not just saying everything's going to be going downhill. Um, we also have clear policy recommendations for the existing DSA, right? So we have a paper on amendments or the concrete uh, proposal. We have policy recommendations. So we have this overall analysis that this probably will not solve the problem, the DSA, the way it is right now. But we've also suggested lots of uh, points on how to improve the draft. And I invite everyone to check out the CEP uh, website, CEP Germany. We have a, a separate section on all the papers on the Digital Services Act and the NetsDG and algorithmic amplification and all that. And, and this is all built on, for example, the experience in Germany, where we and other CSOs have tested, for example, the notice and action mechanism. So the idea that users need to see something illegal, then they report it to the company and the company then takes it down. And the results of these monitoring reports are devastating. So usually results are between 30 and 40% of illegal content reported by users to be taken down by the companies. But still, the uh, legislators on the EU level think that notice and action uh, is the key component of keeping users safe. Mm 
In addition, they have the voluntary actions of the companies. And this is why we call this now the notice and no action mechanism. Um, there are lots of other things that we learned regarding trusted flaggers, for example. These are organizations that are supposed to also look for illegal content and report it. They need to be qualified to a degree, but we figured out that they are often too close to the companies. So they are actually depending on the companies that they're supposed to monitor. And it's not hard to imagine that this could lead to uh, issues of uh, conflicts of interest and beyond. And also, of course, they should be and that's one of the concrete suggestions we have, that the so-called trusted flaggers should be paid not by the companies, but from a fund that the companies pay into. So they're not, it's not like Facebook saying, we give you money so you can then monitor us. And if what happens if we get bad results, right? We might look for another trusted flagger. So there's lots of suggestions from, for example, the NetsDG and other attempted regulations that we've put forward in our papers. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that the amendments which have been proposed by CEP, you know, very constructively address a lot of those issues. I think independence of trusted flaggers, you know, clear and accountable processes, auditing, things that would, you know, significantly improve the Digital Services Act. So we hope and we will certainly work and collaborate to try to ensure that some of the co-legislators will uh, take on board those proposals and ultimately when the Digital Services Act is enacted, that it will be an improved framework and that CEP will have stamped some of that positive change on the proposal. Final question, Alexander. We have a kind of a, an indicative timeline and it is intended that the French presidency in 2022 will bring the, the negotiations between the Commission, the Parliament and the Council to an advanced stage and hopefully a conclusion. Do you think that's a realistic timeline when we look at what has happened with the terrorist content online regulation, when we look at what happened with the copyright legislation, which you talked about a while ago? This is very contentious stuff. Do you think it's realistic to expect it to be done and dusted in a year's time? First of all, I have to say I'm happy that it's going to be the French presidency and not the Irish presidency. Sorry to say that in terms of regulative bodies and competent authorities and all the... Uh, my, my impression is that the French have a maybe better understanding. I mean, that's a value judgment, but they have an understanding of what the problem is that is a bit closer to our assessment than to the assessment of, for example, EU member states where those big companies are located and provide jobs and everything. So in general, I'm very happy that it's going to be the French presidency. Also that, of course, France is one of the leading EU countries. And I think chances are increasing that this will lead to a better final law than the current draft is. But as you highlighted, there's uh, thousands now of uh, possible amendments in play from the member states, from members of parliaments, uh, from members of parliament in the EU. So I'm not sure if the timeline is realistic, but I also think we should take the time to really discuss this through. There's lots of amendments to be discussed and lots of room of improvement for the draft law. So, and CEP, as you said, we've been on this for a couple of years and we're definitely going to stay on and try to advise and support anyone who wants to really build a better and safer internet for European citizens. 
agree entirely. And uh, I suppose as we draw to a close, it's probably a good time to remind our listeners, particularly any policymakers who are involved in this process, that CEP is actively engaged. We have, as you said, on our website, a range of policy papers, position papers, studies, analysis, proposed amendments. So a lot of work has been carried out by the CEP team, and we would really love to engage further with decision makers as this process continues and uh, and hopefully draws to a conclusion at some point next year. So Alexander, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts very clear and helpful context and background to these proposals and wishing you continued success in all of your work uh, with CEP on this important topic. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 